Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I was rejoined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Tro Kalajian. He last joined the podcast on episode 54, back when it was co-hosted with Dr. Kelly Donahue. Dr. Tro joins me today, and his background is in both internal medicine and obesity medicine. He's also a founding member of the Society for Metabolic Health Practitioners. He has lost over 150 pounds by challenging conventional medical advice. Today, we spent a great amount of time kind of outlining the impact of food addiction and how our current medical model has exacerbated the challenges that many patients are experiencing. We spoke at length about what is wrong with the calories in, calories out model, why binge eating is not the appropriate terminology for food addiction, and why the role of macros, surgery and medications, the emphasis on the need for patient autonomy and shared decision-making, the impact of the CDC, FDA, and insurance companies on the way that physicians and other healthcare practitioners are practicing medicine, managing hunger, cravings, social interactions, and emotions, and so much more. This is a really impactful episode. I really admire Dr. Tro and his desire to encourage all practitioners to be able to be better advocates for their patients and really flip the traditional medical paradigm. I hope you will enjoy our conversation as much as I did recording it. I would really love to start the conversation today talking about the fact that I think Oprah just put out a thing on social media yesterday that was saying the most underdiagnosed but most prevalent eating disorder right now is binge eating. Would you agree with that? Yes, 100%. Yeah. Binge eating is nearly, I mean, ubiquitous in people coming to my clinic. I think the amount of food addiction, if you look at uh, Gearhart's work from University of Michigan, it corroborates that you know, food addiction and binge eating. I don't like the term binge eating, by the way. It's like saying like binge drinking or binge smoking. I mean, it's just, it's a bad term. We should call it what it is, which is food addiction. Yeah, the amount of people with food addiction, even as old as 65 is, you know, upwards of 30% may have food addiction symptoms. And I bet it's even more than that. So yeah, I think binge eating, this idea of losing control, maybe feeling some shame or guilt around your food consumption, eating to the point where it hurts, you know, not eating in front of other people, then losing control and eating a lot sort of alone. I mean, these are some of the symptoms of binge eating and they're highly prevalent. In fact, 100% of the people coming to me have one of these questions answered positively. Yeah, I'm happy that Oprah is getting on the bandwagon. Yeah, it, it was interesting because I thinking about, you know, when I asked you to come back on the podcast and you're someone that I could easily talk to for hours and hours and hours, and I could have you come back every year or every six months to kind of, you know, talk about relevant and timely topics. But that was really what stood out to me was this poor understanding of what food addiction represents, how prevalent it is, how many people suffer from it, many of them in silence because they don't feel comfortable talking about their relationship, their distorted relationship with food. And it was interesting. There was a, I was looking at this Yale addiction scale and it was saying 16.2% of us experience food addiction, according to a meta-analysis review of 51 studies that use the Yale addiction scale based on criteria in relation to specific types of foods. And so I think that's probably underreported. I would imagine it's way more than that. And certainly in your clinical experience with your own patient population, when you're kind of getting a sense of what someone's relationship is with food, I think that we are a nation that has largely extremes. It's either a preoccupation with not eating or a preoccupation with restriction or a preoccupation with eating in silence and shame. And, you know, somewhere in between, I think each one of us have a very personal interrelationship with food. And I think for you, you know, given you, you speak so openly about your own experiences and your own trajectory, and you're so incredibly inspiring. And so when you're working with your patients, where do you really start from? 
when you've acknowledged that they have some degree of food addiction, you know, what is the first step for addressing this proactively? I think the biggest problem is actually not addressing it. Addressing it is easy once you know your fight, what you're fighting, right? Like if you, you know, it's sort of like my young kids when they, you know, have a little bit of a fear of the unknown or, or, you know, they would worry about a test, like what's going to be on that test, you know, it's a state test or this or that. They, you know, they sort of be unclear of the enemy in front of them. When you're dealing with food addiction, people even say like, you know, I'm addicted to food or I love chocolate. I'm a chocoholic. I'm a breadaholic. I can't stop eating bread, whatever it is. Like, this is what they say. Right. And so one thing is understanding what exactly food addiction is from the clinician's point of view. The other point is understanding the patient, understanding what it means. Like I've had people say the word, I'm addicted to food. And I'm like, what does that mean to you? They're like staring at me like with a deer and headlights. So when a patient says I'm food addicted or they feel like they have food addiction symptoms, they actually are saying, I need insight to understand, you know, how my brain works, how it's going to talk to me, uh, how it's going to negotiate with me, the feelings it's going to, you know, have around the substance, the logic it's going to employ, the outlook it's going to take, the way I'm going to blame myself, the way I'm going to advocate for myself. They don't really get what it means, right? They just realize they have like this connection or relationship to the food and it's a problem, right? That's what they mean when they say food addiction. So our job is to get them to understand what that means. And that's very challenging. And then the biggest problem is actually, actually just clinicians, you know, clinicians understanding exactly what it is the patient's saying. So now I can have somebody in my office who says, I'm a chocoholic. Does that mean they're food addicted? Not really, right? You have to actually, you know, you have to go a step further. Is there some emotional distress around eating, right? Like, is there a sort of automatic response? You know, like, so for example, I have a problem with sweets, right? And yet, and I was 350 pounds, you know, 10 years ago. And my wife would tell me, hey, maybe you shouldn't eat that, right? And my feelings, my emotional response would be, hey, Rosette, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. I'm a grown man, right? So there's an emotional disconnect between what it is my goals are, which is be a healthy, happy father for myself and my family. And my emotional response is actually against my goals, right? This is the first thing. There's this emotional conflict between what it is somebody with food addiction wants to do for themselves, right? Everybody who comes to our clinic doesn't want to be obese. Nobody wants to be obese. Nobody wants to have diabetes. Nobody wants to be healthy. Everybody wants to master their relationship to food, you know, but there's this emotional response that's the antithesis to their goal. That's one of the hallmarks of food addiction. And, and you could just have harmful use of a substance. You know, you like, you don't want to use it and you use it occasionally. And, you know, you don't like that relationship. Maybe once a month you have something sweet and you know, that's not something you want to do, but it's not having any long-term impacts on your body and it's not having any ill health, but you don't like that relationship. Well, that's just harmful use, right? Now, what makes something food addiction is that next step where there's psychologic distress, Right. So now the emotional conflict, this emotional disconnect, the experience, the agitation, the oppositional defiance, the, you know, you know, all the manipulative ways food addiction can get you to keep using a substance. Right. The way that, you know, it'll say once you've gone off plan, like a dog, just keep eating that way, eat the whole week or the way it'll logic you into eating that substance by saying, you know, don't waste food. You might as well eat the leftovers or, you know, you've been really good. You deserve it. Right. You know, all this sort of, you know, manipulations on logic or emotions, right. That's the power of food addiction. When this happens again and again and again, and that emotional disconnect continues to happen, what ends up happening is you get psychological distress right? You feel shame and guilt. You don't want to keep doing this. You want to change. And so when you have that psychological distress from this continued bad relationship, bad emotional response, bad logic response, bad outlook, constant self-blame, like, oh, I just need to do better. I'm the worst. I just, why can't I say no, right? Right. When you constantly blame yourself instead of advocating for yourself, 
then you develop the psychological stress and you develop intense shame and guilt. And that's a key hallmark of going from harmful use to addiction is, you know, that emotional disconnect, that logic disconnect, that, that outlook and advocacy, the self-blame. They're so disconnected from what you want to be to what you're actually doing that it leads to, uh, you know, real problems with your overall mood and your approach to this. And then the last key hallmark is that psychological distress. And this is somebody who has, you know, food addiction or binge eating to a degree that really needs attention. Although I'd say any point on that spectrum needs attention. But when that psychological distress becomes so regular and so powerful that you now change your behavior to accommodate the psychological distress and accommodate that emotional uh, friction around that substance. So meaning like, you know, now you won't eat in front of other people and you, but you'll eat a bunch of, you'll lose control alone or you'll hold out all day in an effort to fight this and then lose control and eat to the point you're hurting or, or maybe you'll hide wrappers or you won't go to a social scenario because there's going to be food there or you don't eat in front of other people because it's a social event and you don't want to eat in front of others. And so what happens there with that behavior is you're actually modifying your behavior to accommodate the psychological distress instead of to change the underlying actions, to change the relationship to the substance, right? So that's sort of the peak of food addiction, where now you're not changing your actions, you're not changing your relationship to the substance, your emotional disconnect is driving the psychological disconnect, which is now making you change your behavior to accommodate the substance, right? And that's like end stage food addiction. That's what it looked like. Hiding and sneaking wrappers, doing well all day, then losing control at night, avoiding social situations around food. You know, that's food addiction. And the clinician needs to know what's going on here. Who's a harmful user, you know, who has, you know, some food addiction symptoms and who's really severely food addicted. And then, you know, and that's just, the, so I think the problem lies with the clinician, right? Because now if you have somebody with these symptoms, you know, you're not giving them a nutritional message. It's not like, you know, count your hours, count your carbs. It's not going to give them insight as to what they're fighting, right? So the next step is like, all right, what do you do with that patient now? Where do you start with that patient? Do they understand? I don't know. Does that answer the question? No, it definitely does. And it, it provides some insights that, you know, I think as myself, as someone who trained in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and, you know, back then, the kind of standard prevailing allopathic message was exercise more, eat less. You're not exercising enough. You're eating too much. Don't eat fat. Fear eating meat. I mean, there were so many conflicting messages that we were sharing with patients. So we had patients that maybe they had a propensity for food addiction and it gets fueled because they're never satiated. Do you find that a lot of these patients, it's the lack of, of satiety that kind of can drive some of these behaviors? Meaning if we, I say we as a culture are indoctrinating our patients into this model of eating more plant-based protein, overeating animal-based protein, fearing fat, focusing on carbs. I mean, certainly my plate is not doing any of us any favors. I'm sure we'll probably touch on some of the, you know, industry related messages that patients are receiving. But do you feel that a lot of the wisdom, and I'll put that in air quotes, that we've been conferring to patients for the last 20 some odd years have perhaps contributed to, you know, you mentioned that a lot of this is educating clinicians. And I absolutely agree with you 100% that nutrition is is important, but helping people and clinicians understand the trajectory of food addiction and understanding that it's not a lack or desire to not lose weight. It's that it's something much larger than that. Yeah. I think most clinicians and most dietitians, if you look at the literature, are they're 18 times more likely to have orthorexia or anorexia. They're meaning their food issues may be completely separate than the general population although that's changed lately. I think the problem is we just stink. We don't help people. We've been ineffective at managing the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic. It's so bad that now we have a pediatric obesity epidemic, diabetes epidemic, fatty liver epidemic. So we are unable to inspire change at a systematic level. We're failing. And then, you know, what's the beautiful part about the setup is 
their theory of energy balance has made it so that it's the patient's fault. So now we're terrible at what we do, but it's your fault because you're eating too much, right? And, you know, that would be like if AAA said there's more flat tires, so it's all your fault because you guys aren't driving safely enough, right? It's a preposterous, you know, self-serving message. So, yeah, I think the field, if we were effective at what we did, we would not get the results we are getting, which is worsening obesity, worsening diabetes, worsening fatty liver, and at an earlier and earlier age, and more and more of the population. So I think the first thing that we need to do is accept that we failed. And I do think that there's legacy harm from all the messaging, right? The first thing, if you even believe their theory of energy balance, which I'm not sure that I completely agree with, there's, there's some parts that I agree, some parts that I don't, but even if the goal is to eat less, right? well, what's the side effect of eating less? Hunger. So that's the first side effect that you need to manage, right? What may, you know, how can I make my patients less hungry so they can eat less? And that leads you inevitably to eating filling foods, you know, which is protein, fat, maybe fiber, you know, maybe I'll say. So I think you're right. I think we, the nutritional, the prevailing nutritional message got it wrong, right? And then the blaming patients and authoritative nature of physicians exacerbated the problem. And then the diet advice, you know, and the blame it instilled on patients, the way that it made them feel responsible, right? For what happened to them. It's been terrible. It's like the worst thing to be able to see. It's affected my family, you know, it's affected everyone, you know, my parents, my brothers, myself, and, you know, none of them have a lack of self-blame. None of them want to be obese, right? And, you know, I remember being a 13-year-old boy at the same weight I am now. It was a before my growth spurt, obviously, but chubby little kid. And the uh, doctor saying, you're going to be just like your family. You're fat. And I remember sitting in his office for like two hours prior to that. You know, he was ridiculously late. And, you know, thinking to myself, well, this guy you know, sees my family, sees what we're going through. And his waiting room has a bunch of chairs and a TV. And he made me wait here for two hours. I could have been playing outside. And I remember thinking that at 13, that was one of my formative moments, actually, is thinking, telling me to go lose weight. And he makes me wait for two hours with the television in the waiting room. And not that like, Dr. Adis was the cause of my obesity. Nothing, right? He put a television and made me sit. So this idea that like we could just keep blaming patients and not accept radical responsibility as a profession is insane to me. If your patients have diabetes and they have obesity and you are not helping them, right? You need to take ownership, not your patients. You need to take ownership. And if it's the patients who don't want to take ownership, well, then they should like say that. You should document that. You should say, I've talked to the patient and the patient is aware of everything I brought up and agrees that at this point it is their responsibility and they need it. But I don't think any doctor has ever effectively, you know, given somebody insight into their issue. I mean, I haven't met them. I can count on my hands, you know, how many doctors said something more than eat less and move more. Right. And if you look at it, that would be like AAA saying, oh, you got a flat tire, pump more air in than you let out. That doesn't help. Or a financial, you know, advisor saying you need to make more money than you spend. Right. To like that's it's true, but it's dumb. And then you're saying it's my fault. Right. It's just not acceptable. So I think the whole system is against really anybody making change. It leads to, you know, when they say calories in, calories out, you need to eat less and move more. What it does is it says, well, it's under my control, right? I need to consciously eat less. No, you need to subconsciously be less hungry to start with filling foods in your diet so that you have a fighting chance. So I don't know, you got me started. No, no, I think it's a refreshing perspective. And the concept of radical responsibility is one that every licensed healthcare provider should be embracing. I know that when I worked in cardiology, that we would have patients that would come in for 
what they call cardiac clearance. And you can imagine how litigious cardiology is, we would say preoperative risk assessment. But these would be patients who assumed if they had bariatric surgery, that it would solve all of their problems. And I had multiple women just coincidentally, that would say to me, I need to gain 20 pounds to qualify for bariatric surgery. And how many of them, it would be a year long process, they would see psychiatry, they would see pulmonary, they would see cardiology, I mean, they'd see every specialty to get quote, unquote, clearance. And more often than not, they would say, Cynthia, I have to gain 20 more pounds to get my insurance to cover this procedure. And my standard response was always, Make sure this is really what you want. So like, here's the problem, right? You have these things that work, right? They work. Surgery works. And you have these drugs that work. And then what doctors like to do is say, well, I can't help the patient. Well, they don't say this. The patient's not doing it. So let me do it for them in the ways that work. And you put them in these buckets, bariatric surgery, medicine. It's like, no, build insight into your patient's. Like help them understand what they're fighting, help them understand like, okay, you know, figure out what are the foods they struggle with? What foods are you struggling with? What foods do you have, you know, a hard time saying no to? And let's figure out what you're going to do in those situations for each one of those foods. What restaurants do you struggle at? You know, the average person, if you look at, they have 15 to 25 foods that they eat regularly. Right. So you can address 90% of their diet by addressing 15 to 25 items. What are you going to do when you crave this? Right. The average person eats in five to 15 different locations, 90% of their food, meaning let's figure out what you're going to do to these five to 15 places, right? When it comes to your food choices. So in a matter of like maybe minutes, you can actually effectively address 90% of somebody's diet, right? In their most vulnerable moments where they struggle the most. It's not hard. There's about 50 items that need to be addressed to help somebody's lifestyle. Then you get into some of the nuance, right? Like, okay, the feelings of deprivation, that can be managed, right? We can help you manage feelings of deprivation. Let's talk about it when it happens. Let's figure out what we're going to do when it happens. We can manage social situations, hunger, you know, at birthday parties and anniversaries and vacations and business meetings. We can help you manage those. People mess up, okay, when they feel deprived, when they feel bored with their diet, when they're at social situations and with their emotions, when they're stressed out or happy celebrating or when they're so tired of saying no and they have decision fatigue, managing those emotions is critical. So managing somebody's lifestyle from a pragmatic perspective is about 50 line items, not much, right? It's some social situations that need some planning, maybe five emotions that we need to figure out and figure out what we're going to do when they happen. I mean, you can do this in one visit. It's possible, right? I have never met a clinician who's done that, not once, ever. So I think this concept of physician radical responsibility is paramount. We have failed our profession has failed. It is the teachers that are failing the students. Accept it. Figure out what you're going to do because it's not hard. You know, I've asked people reliably, if I get you not hungry, if I'm able to address your cravings, if you don't feel deprived, if we have your social situations managed and your emotional relationship to food managed, meaning like when you're so tired of saying no, when you're depressed and stressed out and angry and when you're happy celebrating, if we can manage your food in those circumstances, those five things, hunger, cravings, feelings of deprivation, social situations, emotions, how much of a food issue do you have? The answer is uniformly, I don't have a food issue. So notice how calories was not in there, exercise was not in there, right? None of this was in there. Macros and blah, blah, blah. None of that crap is in there. It's what are you going to do when you're craving those, when you're used to eating 15 to 25 foods? What are you going to do when you are in those 5 to 15 places you eat the majority of your food with the 5 to 10 people you eat the majority of the food with, right? You have 50 line items and docs can't figure that out. Like, get out of here. You failed. 
Do you think it has, I kind of feel like I was describing this to a younger clinician the other day. I'd said like, I know when I finished my nursing and nurse practitioner program, and we were always taught that we should evolve, shift and change throughout our lifetime as a clinician. That was the expectation, big teaching hospital. But I find most of my clinicians that I know, they stay rooted in whatever time paradigm they trained in, meaning I'm confident they go to CMEs and I know they're reading the literature and I know they're they're paying attention, but it seems much harder for people to change their viewpoints about whether it's, you know, food addiction, whether it's diabetes management, which you and I both know is really poorly managed, metabolic health. It's almost as if some people just stay stuck in the time frame in which they trained and they're just seemingly unwilling. And I say I'm making a generalization, which is probably unfair, but just for argument's sake, it seems that there are less of us that are shifting the paradigm or reframing the way that we look at specific chronic conditions and health issues. It's hard to be, but we signed up for this. Right. And if you look, I mean, you look at teachers, it's the same. You look at any accountants, it's the same. Dentists is the same. Right. When you look at anybody, right. And you ask yourself, how many people were born to do this? Right. When I train medical students, I train doctors, I train residents, right. I train them. And if I'm looking and I'm like, how many people were born to be healers? How many people were born to figure out the mysteries that other people can't figure out? go deeper than other people, you know, how many were born to help, right? Somebody heal, what, one out of five, right? Maybe one fifth was, you know, like they did good in school or I don't, one fifth thought there's money in medicine. There isn't, by the way, you know, maybe one fifth thought that, you know, it was some sort of prestige. There's no prestige, right? And maybe like one fifth actually was born to do this. I I say the same thing to my kids about teachers. Like how many of your teachers were born to be a teacher? Maybe one out of five, right? And there's nothing against teachers. I think all professions maybe to some degree suffer from this issue. So yeah, everybody's just mediocre and they don't take, the profession doesn't take responsibility. Pressure blames others. You know, it's funny. I was like looking online on, and somebody was talking about the pandemic, you know, and and they were a, uh, somebody who's very, you know, pro sort of public health measures. And after several years, seemingly this person got COVID and said, see, we should have been masking hard enough. I mean, that was the first instinct this person has to say, you know, I go on like walks on trails and I see masks on the floor. I go to the Hudson River, you know, and I see masks floating up. Like, you know, we sold trillions of masks worldwide, trillions, right? Five billion vaccines were, more than five billion vaccines were given, right? And yet this person was like blaming others for them getting COVID, right? And it hit me that, you know, we as a profession really, really suffer from this idea of radical responsibility. Well, you got COVID, how is your health? You know, Peter Hotez was on Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan said, you know, how do you take care of yourself? Do you eat junk food? Well, I go with my daughter and I eat French fries and a burger, the Coke and a milkshake every Wednesday. That's our thing. Where's the radical ownership of public health measures? Is there any radical ownership here? Right. And so I think our profession, when you're looking at, you know, it's easier for us to be authoritative and blame the patient. And it's much harder for us to say, what can I do more? You know, Peter Hotez is all about misinformation and vaccine hesitancy. You know, at what point is he going to say, what more could I do? Well, stop being wrong, right? Stop blaming others. You know, maybe they have a value difference than you or they, they just can't do what you want them to do. So then we have to pivot, right? So I think the problem here is people are, their values, you know, the physician's values are off. And at some point we have to say it is our, like we are here, you know, and our knowledge is going to inspire patients or it's going to help patients. It's going to help. It's going to help this person. Our knowledge, right? Our insight is going to help this person and our ignorance is going to hurt them. And as long as you have that value that you have to become more knowledgeable and you have to gain more insight over time, 
You have to be less ignorant, less experienced over time. Right? Your clinical practice will get better and better and better. But if you take no ownership over the outcomes, what do you do? You just don't update yourself. You don't update your thinking. You don't reevaluate what you're doing. Last year, and generally when it came to my recommendations for flu shot, I said, it's your choice. And if you're elderly, you may want to consider it. And that's still, I still believe that shared decision-making, patient autonomy. What do you, do you think that you should take it? Changes every year. We don't know if we have the match rate. There's no long-term sort of outcomes on side effects because they rotate the strain every year, but, you know, definitely reduces the flu, right? Especially years that it matches. Well, they did a study in 2000. So that was my message. I was like, I haven't taken it personally and gave the information to the patient and left it up to them. Well, I've become a lot more positive over flu shots. Well, why? In 2021, a bunch of cardiologists got together and they said, let's see if it reduces heart attacks. And they did a double blind placebo controlled trial for three years, okay, with flu shots. And it was a year that the strains weren't like 2016 to 20 was not a great match rate years. But they showed that if they gave it to people with heart disease who had a heart attack or cabbage done, that it actually saved lives and decreased all cause mortality, right? In fact, you needed to give it to 40 people to save one life in that group which is pretty huge. Now, I see this amazing data set and I change my view, even though I'm like the guy who's like, look, be careful, there's no long-term data. Right now we have a well-done study showing that you know it decreases all-cause mortality in people who have heart disease. Now, you know, I could just double down on my previous beliefs, but that's not gonna help my patients. What does that do for my own personal growth, right? You have to adapt to this new information. You have to be willing to challenge your own preconceived notions. Now, some may say, well, look at those people who got it right. The people who were blindly saying, take the vaccine. Yeah, they were blind and they happened to get lucky, right? There was no data to support it, right? There was no good quality data. They happened to get lucky. So would I rather be lucky or would I rather be a little bit late? Me personally, my style is I'd rather make sure I have the evidence, make sure I'm right before I make it right, but I am willing to change. It's not about mantra, it's about results, right? And I think the problem with our profession is they're not willing to examine, you know, what's going on. Now, what do I say about flu shots now? I'm still not gonna take it. I don't have a heart attack, I don't have any heart disease, and I don't have a cabbage. But I tell my patients who have a high CAC or have had a heart attack, it's been shown in your group to save lives. Well, what's the process here? The process is we have to adapt and we have to put down, I'm not, my identity is not being vaccine hesitant or challenging or contrarian. My identity is being evidence-based and improving the lives of my patients. That is my identity. My identity is in my politics of don't freaking force me to do something or any of my patients to do something. That's not my identity. That's what I want, right? My identity is the results of my patients. My identity is respecting my patients' autonomy. My identity is respecting their decision-making and giving them the best possible data. So just because I'm slightly, you know, I lean a certain way politically, it doesn't mean I'm going to throw a blind eye to great science. And it doesn't mean I'm going to ignore data to support my biases and my opinions and my values right? So I still value patient autonomy. I tell them it saves lives. And then I say, what do you want to do? So I think the problem is why this is a long-winded discussion, but, and I probably, I was, we got lost in the middle there, but my point here is, is as a profession, we have to, you know, our mission is to serve our patients. If you have a mission, if your identity is to be a healer, and that's what you were born to do, right? This is like easy for me. It's easy. I love this. I love finding out that I was wrong because now I can serve my patients better. I love gaining experience because now I can serve my patients better. I love changing. Easy for me to read the literature and keep up to date. This is what I was born to do, right? And I think most of the people that you mentioned, you mentioned talking to a student, you know, we have to put that passion into them. This is a sacred profession right? We're here to heal people. We're here to help people. We're not here to collect a paycheck from an insurance company. These are important conversations to be had. And 
I really applaud your transparency, your honesty, your integrity, because one of the reasons why I left clinical cardiology, you know, with a, a group that was willing to make anything happen to keep me was that I could no longer work in a paradigm where we weren't focused on any of the lifestyle. You know, we weren't given the opportunity to spend time talking about sleep and nutrition. And I kept saying, these patients are vasculopaths, like they've gone to a point of they've got carotid artery disease, they have peripheral vascular disease, they have epicardial disease. And what are we telling them to do? We're talking to them about fear protein, eat more carbs, you know, where their diabetes is getting worse, we're not making them better. And so for me, it was definitively a shift in my think thought process that I could no longer write a hundred statin prescriptions every week if I couldn't then also be talking about the lifestyle piece, which was so important. And that was a very hard decision to make. And that's why in many reasons, this podcast for me is a passion project so that I can share the voices of experts in this space with the community to help them navigate choices that they're making in their own lives. And so, you know, that patient autonomy, the shared decision-making, talking and calling out clinicians for not wanting to do more for their patients and to be in a position of constantly learning and applying things that they get in their CMEs. You know, we, all of us as licensed healthcare providers have a certain amount of continuing education we have to do when we relicense. How many people are actually applying what they're learning or are they in an echo chamber? I think that's the problem. It's hard. You know, I, during the COVID pandemic, here I am, I'm a metabolic doc, but I'm also board certified internist, board certified in obesity medicine. So, but I'm curious. So that's my nature. Throughout the pandemic, you know, I'm reading everything. I read all of the protocols and trial results for every major therapeutic for COVID I listen to every advisory committee, FDA advisory committee. I don't know if another doctor has done that. I don't know of one. Just to just show you how insane I am. <laughs> but like, you know, I read all the briefing documents for the advisory committee meetings, you know, and it hit me that I, mean, I know there are other doctors out there because I follow them on social media. So I'm not like tooting my own horn here. There are many, but I don't personally know, you know, in my professional sort of world. But the point here is, is that, you know, how if I wasn't inspired, if I wasn't sort of like divinely inspired or inspired to do, to be the best doctor, you know, what would I have done? I would have relied on what the central authorities would have told me. And I would have relied on the insurance company to guide me. Right. And so most doctors you know, 80%, 20%, if you believe my 20% rule, who are actually inspired to be in medicine and do great work, 80% are, are being guided by, you know, sort of the central planners. And the central planners don't, and insurance companies, they don't really prize shared decision-making or patient empowerment as their principles, right? You know, they think about population medicine. They think about you know, what should we tell everybody to do? We, they think about giving your kids, you know, their fifth booster and mandating it in college, despite the risk of, you know, a slight increase of myocarditis in their group. So they think, well, look, we just got to break a couple eggs to make an omelet, right? Whereas I'm like, well, what do you want to do? You know, do you want to accept this potential one in 2000 to one in 5,000 risk of COVID myocarditis in exchange for, you know, immunity? You know, have you had COVID already? These simple questions, like when you're dealing with results, which is the dealing with results is the person in front of you, making sure that they have the best possible outcomes. You're inspired to learn everything, right? You want to learn. You want to challenge yourself. You want to challenge your previous assumptions. You want to keep learning, right? But when you're guided by, you know, sort of the CDC, FDA, and the medical organizations and insurance companies, you've sort of outsourced your work. And so what happens is, is, well, when they're right, right, when the central planners are right, well, you're right, right? And the responsibility is off you. But now you're just like a lemming and a cog in the wheel. And you've lost that critical piece, which is, I am responsible for the person in front of me and their good outcomes. So I think, and not to say, 
there's anything wrong with our central planners. I mean, I can criticize them all day, but I would never take their job just to be fully honest, right? I would never take their job. It's a hard job. You can almost never be right, right? So, you know, and as an insurance company, I'm not sure I would do anything different. I would try to obstruct care as much as they do if that if I was an insurance company, but I'm not. I'm a clinician that has a passion for, I'm curious, I'm passionate, and I want to align you know, myself with the people in front of me. I think it's important because, you know, the last three years has been challenging to navigate as a human being. And I know that you have a voracious desire to understand the literature, to understand what's out there. You know, I saw you in particular on Twitter, really challenging people to, you know, not fall prey to not questioning things. The whole scientific method is constantly questioning. And that's good science to question everything. And so I am so grateful to not only count you as a friend, but also applaud your efforts, because it's not easy when you have an opinion that is based in looking objectively at information that may be contrary to what some of those big organizations, insurance companies, et cetera, are putting out there for people to embrace and to, you know, share with their own patients. That's not an easy place to be. And so, you know, it really isn't. And I I want to acknowledge that, that I know that, you know, sometimes you get into a little bit of a tussle with individuals who, you know, you're like, no, that's actually not the way you interpret that research. You know, let me explain this to you. That's not an easy place to be. Yeah. I mean, like, look, you know, a lot of times patients are looking for a do or don't do like, is a flu shot good or bad? Well, in who, for who? I just gave you an example. I can tell you that we have data saying it saves lives in this group. Do I take it? It's bad for me. I don't want it. And I'm young and healthy. It's bad for me. It's not good for me. You could give it to 5,000 me's and not save one life, right? But you can give it to 40 people who've just had a heart attack and save one life. So people, and people, same thing with food. People are like, well, tell me what to eat. Well, what do you struggle with? Telling you not to eat chocolate. I mean, I struggle with chocolate. You have chocolate once a year. So telling you not to eat chocolate, it's not, we're two different people. It's not the substance. It's the person, right? Are statins good or bad? I don't like, they have a terrible side effects profile. They're the only drug that has a decrease in all-cause mortality for people who have coronary disease. They're the only drug that's lowered all-cause mortality. There's Rapatha, there's Zetia, there's, you know, Colchazine now, there's Bempopoic Acid, there's Vasipa. The only drug to ever show decrease in all-cause mortality statins. And almost, I don't think any of those drugs have reduced cardiovascular deaths except Vasipa. Meaning that like all those drugs that are multi-billion dollar blockbuster drugs that never saves a life. Do I like statins? No. They cause muscle aches, they increase insulin resistance, they make women particularly have higher blood sugars, terrible muscle aches, can cause liver issues, they deplete CoQ10, deplete K2 and D3. All these things need to be managed, right? So the problem is our patients are looking for, do I take a COVID shot or not? Well, who, is a COVID shot good or not? You know, like I can't judge that. I mean, if I was 85 years old, never had COVID, have multiple medical issues, frail, I may consider taking it. I don't care about five-year side effects if my five-year mortality is 100%, right? So I think it matters, you know, to, to just take the interest out of medicine, the lemmings out of medicine, and the non-critical thinking out of medicine and take off the automatons, right? Take them out, right? Because I understand the public health thing. This is how the public health people think. So everybody go recommend the vaccine. <laughs> that is what they're doing. So the problem with the central planners and the people who follow them is that they're mediocre, right? That's the problem. And mediocre works for majority of people. I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to want to be that. I'm never going to try to be that. That's the nature of it. And it took me a long time to understand it's a value difference. Once you see the bias in, in medicine, you see it in nutrition, you see it in a lot of other things. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to pivot just a little bit because you and I exist in a, a wonderful space of incredible clinicians. And what I always find interesting is the backlash against low-carb ketogenic diets 
especially in the research, you know, we can talk about that consensus statement that came out recently. Why do you think that there's such a a strong low carb bias within the medical community? What do you think contributes to that? Because I know that in having the ability to interact with so many incredible researchers and clinicians on this podcast, it's a question that I ask with some frequency. And yet it becomes something that I think in many ways can be really polarizing, which is unfortunate because there is a lot of therapeutic value to utilizing a low carb or ketogenic diet with our patient populations? Well, let's talk about the elephant in the room. So the American Academy of Pediatrics recently said that they recommend against low-carb diets. Now, the Academy as an institution, they've also recommended for obesity the use of bariatric surgery and injection drugs. They've also recommended saying a plant-based diet is safe for every kid over two years old. None of these have really long-term you know, outcomes data, but they accepted these off of surrogate endpoints. When it came to a low-carb diet, you know, the people involved were, you know, two authors and, you know, they gave some, you know, credence to the data from pediatrics, which showed in type 1 patients improvement. They talked about some data in obesity that was slightly favorable, but they quoted like esoteric data, like data from, you know, 4 to 1, like 90% fat diets used for epilepsy and the protein deficiency that basically comes with that old sort of way of doing ketogenic diets and seizures from the 80s and the 70s, right? So it's clear that they don't do this. They don't practice metabolic health and they're trying to talk about metabolic health outcomes, right? With faulty data, right? With inappropriate data. It's sort of like you know, it would be the equivalent of me saying, well, nobody should get a flu shot, but it does work in people with coronary disease, but really nobody should get a flu shot. So like, that's sort of like the approach that they're taking. It's not wrong. It's just a shame. And if you step back, so if you look at their consensus statement on low carb, basically says people need to be monitored if they want to take it, right? And that otherwise it shouldn't be recommended. So, which is not terrible advice. In some ways, it's giving an ounce of flexibility. But really, you know, it came down to esoteric nutritional issues that don't apply to the modern ketogenic diet, modified Atkins, Atkins, which are the mainstay for seizure prevention diets, which they could have taken 20 years of data from. And they also, you know, did this trope where they somehow connected going low carb to getting an eating disorder. But there's more data showing that lowering your calories causes eating disorders. So it's just like, it's not, they didn't make sense. They said, well, lowering carbs could cause an eating disorder. So instead, lower energy, saying the same thing. And in fact, lowering your energy, quote unquote, has more of a risk of causing an eating disorder. So I think like if I had really no understanding of behavior change and nutrition, I would have written something like that. If I was like an 80% person that was tasked by, you know, the AAP to write something about low carb, you do a quick little search, you put some stuff together and, you know, you're an endocrinologist. That's what it looks like, right? And then when you step back and look at it as an institution, it's highly favorable for plant-based diets off of surrogate endpoints injection drugs and surgery. So, well, how does that happen? Well, the data that they rely on is like very well funded. If you're, again, if you're an 80% doc who is just like instigated by somebody with a bit of understanding about this, that's the kind of papers you'd end up with. So now as an institution, so what happens, the AAP says, you know, don't do low carb, do plant-based, take injection drugs and get bariatric surgery. And if you just step back, So this is the problem right now is we need to get metabolic health doctors talking about metabolic health. And this is what the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners is about. You know, we now have 500 docs in there. We have a certification process for metabolic health. So we're going to have consensus statements. We have a journal. We're absorbing the Journal of Insulin Resistance and making it the Journal of Metabolic Health. And we are going to be publishing consensus statements with doctors who practice metabolic health all the time and are experts in their field. So I think our job now to be great is just to reclaim, you know, they're trying to comment on metabolic health, but they have no training or experience with metabolic health. 
I don't blame them for writing, writing what they did. It's sort of like a handicapped person, you know, sort of running a mile. It's going to be slower. It's not going to look as pretty as somebody who's, who is able-bodied. So yeah, that's how I view it. It's a shame. It's really a shame. And if you step back, it's embarrassing. You know, like imagine being an institution and saying, don't do low carb, just lower your energy. Plant-based is fine. Injection drugs are cool. And oh, by the way, go do surgery for 12. There's something wrong there. I couldn't agree more. And it's interesting. My teenagers, I now have two teenagers, we were talking about that consensus statement. And I asked them, you know, they're both very physically active, very metabolically healthy. And I said, would you think if my recommendation to you as a clinician was, and I kind of went through that and they just said, that doesn't make sense. Now these are teenagers, they're not clinicians, but they said, why wouldn't we start with changing that nutritional paradigm? Why wouldn't we be talking about, they know the word satiety. Why aren't we talking about protein and vegetables and more physical activity as opposed to going directly to a plant-based diet, which for many individuals, if they're already not metabolically healthy, they're going to be eating more carbohydrates and thinking about GLP-1 agonists and thinking about surgery. They both looked at me and said, that would be a terrible thing to have to consider at such a young age. And these are teenagers. So imagine the rest of us sitting back and you know, hearing that consensus statement and then watching my peers, including yourself, speaking you know, very outspokenly on social media and saying like, let's bring more attention to this because we, we can do better. We can definitely do better for our pediatric population. I think the problem is just, there are, most of our profession is just asleep at the wheel. And I think that's how papers like this get published. You know, they have no experience with metabolic health and then they go write about it and it's very damaging. That's the other thing. It's very damaging and they don't understand that damage. You know, we talked about in the beginning of this, that legacy impact of poor nutrition advice and how it disempowers and disenfranchises people who are struggling. So yeah, there's a reason why the SMHP, the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners exists. And it's exactly this. I'm so grateful for our time together today. I definitely would love to bring you back. In fact, we kind of started the conversation saying I should have you back a couple times a year because... I think bringing greater awareness to my listeners about some of the things that clinicians are are struggling with or that they're seeing and they're feeling like maybe that voice isn't being amplified enough to allow for greater understanding of some of the challenges that clinicians are facing right now. Yeah. I mean, look, there's never been a better time to be a doctor. People are sick. People need us. But I think we just have to wake up our profession and I appreciate everything you're doing. Thank you, my friend. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe, and tell a friend.